My guest today is Anoop Kira. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Anoop is a exceptional leader and outstanding mentor. He is innovative, organized, helpful, and is always open to ideas and suggestions. Here's another one. Anoop is a true professional when it comes to sales leadership. The sales processes he introduced and the coaching and mentoring he's provided during our time together has been essential in accelerating growth. Growth. Anoop Kira, you're very welcome to the podcast. for uh, some of those comments I feel embarrassed and slightly flattered I didn't write any of them by the way <laughs> I didn't <laughs> they're, they're all from colleagues and ex-colleagues and so on so and there's a lot more of them I only took a small selection so clearly well deserved and I think there's a couple of threads coming out of those that I'd like to explore with you later on but before we get into that maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit Anoop um, wh- where you grew up and what that was like yeah, sure, Paul. So um, I grew up in uh, a small town called Elstree and Bournemouth, which is in Hertfordshire, just outside North London. Um, from that standpoint, I, I spent most of my childhood in there, actually, uh, up until, I'd say, my mid-20s when I decided to kind of move out. But yeah, my my, my background was, was kind of growing up there. Um, when, obviously, my mum my and dad um, came over to the UK in the 70s, so I was kind of like, first generation UK uh, within the family. And uh, yeah, we, we, we grew up in that area. It was, uh, I wouldn't say it was uh, urban, it was, but it was nice. Um, it was a nice mix to, to, to be growing up in that area. Mm. Okay. And talk to me then a little bit about some of the early childhood influences on who you are today. Were there any clues that you're, you're going to end up in sales? End up in sales, I suppose. Um, let me give you some context, actually. So, my dad lost his business when I was about twelve years old, which meant that it was pretty tough at the time. So, I kind of ended up at a young age having to um, kind of work a little bits alongside school and stuff, just to kind of get myself through. Um, and it was the right thing to go to university for me. And coming from the culture I do, it was almost kind of ingrained in that, look, you, you want to go to university. And if you go to university, you want to kind of get a professional degree and come off the back of it. Now, at the time, it would have been quite difficult. So I ended up working part-time in an electrical retail store, similar to similar to like a Curry's uh, mm. at the time. And uh, I was only a cashier at that point. And uh, we used to get the, the, the tasks of like, cleaning TVs and, and washing machines and fridge freezers. And uh, I remember one day I was out there and uh, someone came in and uh, I actually started to, to sell him a, a TV and I didn't realize I wasn't allowed to. Uh, and I sold this TV and uh, my manager at the time was, I'd say, impressed, maybe not some of the other salespeople because I probably took a deal away from them. Um, and off the back of that, I kind of got promoted into kind of like this part-time salesperson. Mm. And I kind of always really enjoyed that because every customer coming in was different. Every conversation was different. And I just, at that point, fell in, in love with sales. And I, and I did go through university and uh, I qualified to become a, a computer-aided engineer. But I think even halfway through my degree, Paul, I realized that I didn't really want to be an engineer. I, mm. I kind of finished it because I started it. Um, but I always kind of had that calling for, for sales. I really enjoyed it. 
Mm. How much of an influence was your father having his own business have on you ending up in sales, do you think? I think the influence maybe more was the fact that my dad lost his business um, mm. at that time. And it made me strive to want to have the things that I always wanted to have in life, right? So being able to be comfortable, being able to buy things that I would like. And I suppose mm. they were like kind of like, I think money was a, initially a big, big driver in sales because sales gave you that, if you were good, that is, that that kind of yeah. financial freedom when you got a commission check to, to go and spend. It wasn't like working a nine to five and then getting a, a Christmas bonus. Not that there's anything wrong with that. For me personally, yeah. this just allowed me to kind of have that ability to, to earn more and, and aim for a goal. So I think my, my, my dad's unfortunate circumstance at that time actually spurred me on. Mm. Interesting. It didn't make you more cautious as a result. It actually made you want to take more risks. Yeah, I think it did. I kind of looked at it that um, there's no risk without reward. And I'm not saying that you make, um, I'd say calculated risks is the better mm. way. So kind of uh, make calculated risks and those decisions and, and aim high. Yeah. So tell me then a little bit about what inspired you when you were younger, the kind of things that energized you, that you wanted to, you know, it gave you life, I guess, the kind, whether it was an individual or, a, or an experience? Well, good question, Paul. Um, I think that it would be, um, actually, so my mum worked in travel and uh, she was very fortunate that when she worked in travel, um, back then before the online boom, that mm. at times her travel company would give like free holidays to, to people or staff so that they could go and experience these locations. Uh, so when a customer came in, they could really describe what the hotel was like and what the area was like. And I kind of got, I was able to travel quite well when I was younger and I kind of got to stay in some really nice places. Uh, and I kind of like, once you've experienced something that's really nice, you kind of mm. like, well, this is fantastic. I would love to do this on, on a regular basis, be able to take my family when I have a family and so on. So I think that was a big inspiration, just the ability to go and travel the world, see nice places, meet different cultures, just to see there was more to the world than uh, a kind of leafy suburban mm. town out in Hertfordshire. Was there a particular place you visited that had a last, made a lasting impression on you? I, I suppose when I was a kid, I think Disney World did, but I think for most kids, <laughs> Disney World was, was uh, absolutely was, yeah. was amazing. If I, if I had it my way back then, that I would have wanted to probably uh, set up home in the, in the Magic Kingdom. But I think mm. um, generally I had an affinity to the US. Um, I got to visit a few places and... Uh, I think in my career, that kind of affinity working with originally initially with kind of American tech companies and, and being in New York or the kind of Silicon Valley, uh, still got an affinity to the US now. So mm. uh, maybe there was a link from early. Mm. And what, what, yeah, I'm just curious, what was it about the US that, that gave you that affinity, do you think? Um, apart from everyone loving someone from the UK, I think they were just super friendly anyway. I don't know, just you, you go to like New York and it's everything's bigger and seems to be better. Like you, you, London's huge, but you, you compare it to some of the large cities in New York. I think, I don't know, it sounds a bit corny and cliche, but they really do at times the, the patriotism and also the 
the kind of American dream that's almost kind of sung about and, and talked about all the time made you kind of believe that anything's possible over there. And you just did see an emergence of some fantastic kind of companies and technologies or brands like take Nike, for example, like fantastic companies that all came out of the US. Mm. So tell me then, when, when are you at your happiest? Professionally or, or personally? No, just at your happiest, the greatest sense, whatever it is, it could be either, it could be both, but what, what gives you the greatest sense of contentment? I think it's changed over time, if I'm honest, Paul. Um, okay. And I think more recently, COVID and the situation with lockdown has definitely made me reprioritize more. Okay. Um, doing the when you're in sales leadership or in tech startups, everything's running at a million miles per hour. And I am happy when I'm in that kind of build mode and helping and you're seeing growth and you're developing people. But it, it shifted a bit for me in the fact that, yes, look, I've got a family, I've got a beautiful wife, I've got a, a, a daughter, um, but I was traveling a lot around the world. Mm. Um, and I know it sounds glamorous from the outside and people on social media be like, oh, you're here or there, but ultimately you're in a kind of, you could be anywhere, you're just in a meeting room for seven hours in a day. Mm. Uh, no one sees the, uh, the kind of hotel, uh, the meal on your own in the hotel lobby. Uh, but with lockdown, I kind of got time to spend the best part of two years with my family. And mm. I think when I look at it now, that, that balance has changed. Yes, I'm still um, super passionate and will always give everything 110%. But I think I'm really happy now just with that time with my family as well, the work-life balance, which um, I've, I've got a better handle on now as well. And is that something then, I, I, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption that it's something you want to hold on to, I guess. The question is how, how do you hold on to that? Because I think we all grew up in that idea that you not just had to work hard, you had to be seen to work hard, which meant leaving home and either traveling or being at the office for long hours. And I think we've realized that that's a busted flush. And the question is, is how do you hold on to that? I think it's about, it's something that I teach my uh, sales reps as well. It's about the, the the kind of big rock methodology of even in, in your calendar. Um, one of the things that most sales reps never get around to would be like, oh, it's dedicated time to prospecting um, because something will always come up that will take your time away. Whereas if you're able to kind of carve out blocks in your calendar to say, no, I'm going to do a couple of hours here for kind of prospecting. And I kind of am using that same sort of methodology in my personal life as well around the family as well, definitely around putting that the, the big rocks in, time where I can pick my daughter up from school, I mean, drop her off in the mornings, spend time at home. And the hybrid, now work, work's changed as well, right? It's, it's never, I don't believe he's ever gonna go back to mm. five days a week in the office. We've actually gone back to a hybrid model, uh, which is nice, we'll spend a few days in the office a few days in uh, home, working from home. I think that's a really nice mix because you get the enablement part and meeting your colleagues, but you also get the time to spend with your family and working from home and just being present. So yeah, I think how I'm planning to hold on to it is by um, mm. continuing to, 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 to use that, that balance and, and carve out the big rocks that are yeah. to me. It's funny that you say it'll never go back. It's, it's interesting because I you think back at the world of work I think it's always been an evolving thing. You go back far enough and, you know, you'd have been out in the fields 
you know, farming or something. Um, you I go back. We referring to field sales for a minute, but no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going back in my own head. And kind of my my great my grandfather was a carpenter. Before that, he was yeah he had a farm, a small farm, and I think a lot of people then you you lived off the land typically, no matter where you came from, um, and then. So my grandfather would have spent time on a roof. My father was a carpenter, but then he went and became a teacher. And But if you look at the world of work, it has evolved. It's gone indoors a lot more than it used to be. Uh, it's less... If you went to work, I'm always amazed when you see pictures of people from 40 years ago going to work. Everybody went booted and suited, tie. You got dressed up to go to work. That's dissipated in the last few years. So there's this kind of evolving workplace i just think the last couple of years has just accelerated the change that was probably going to take place anyway and it forced everybody into the in, into the same experience i get i guess um so i think we can i i i, I be careful how i say this i don't want to say i don't want to say we're going to thank covid because i'm conscious that covid's not been kind to everybody but i certainly think the world of work it has thrown up some really interesting changes that would not have happened anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. I think it's, it's definitely accelerated it. But, and you can kind of see the evolution anyway. You, you talk about um, what was acceptable, what wasn't. I remember one of my first ever jobs, um, I walked into the office and I kind of had stubble and my, my boss sent me home and said, come back from Cleveland, right? And uh, then you kind of Snap. Well, then you had to kind of wear suits uh, yeah. and ties. Um, yeah. And then now it's kind of like you, you, you're fine. Like even now, if you wear a jeans, a shirt and a blazer, that's kind of dressed up. Um, and I suppose yeah. like, when you look at the evolution of work, I think working in tech has always evolved slightly quicker, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the likes of uh, Google having sleep pods and stuff was kind of like, yeah. never heard of. like I, but I know it's more than having a ping pong table, but I just see that evolution is going to continue to yeah i don't know what no, for sure is. yeah i was laughing when you said about being sent home for having stubble uh look at you now <laughs> I know, <right? laughs> but um i i was same thing now i don't think i was sent home because it was a long trip but i worked in redditch in in the midlands and even though i wasn't in a customer facing role at the time uh, you were expected to wear a shirt and tie every day. And one day I came in wearing a polo neck, or that's for our American cousins, a, a turtleneck. And it was funny because I, I actually felt I looked better than many people in the audience who were, had their ties hanging down around their, their belly buttons. But it didn't matter because there was a dress code and polo necks weren't part of that. And I was told not to show up again dressed like that. Yep. Um... Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. But I don't know, maybe it'd been a good thing, Paul. I don't know if turtle necks, polo necks were they in fashion. I don't know. Maybe blessing in disguise. Do you know what they need? At the time, I was a lot slimmer than I am right now. You, if it, tart, uh, Polo necks just do not look well on somebody in any way at all. Just just don't, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> For sure. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit then about your, your transition into uh, leadership that and i also want to go back then and talk about sales because you you'd said actually you know what you said earlier about teaching your sales reps and i had a question uh 
um, that popped into my mind when you were when you were talking about that. And the question was this: when you are teaching, training, coaching your sales reps, what are the kind of lessons that you keep having to repeat? Make me, you make me think on this one. I think the first, okay, this is a this is a common one that I see all the time, um, and I kind of call it happy is, um, mm. and this is where reps will kind of at times hear what they want to hear in the deal, and it's about being able to, I mean, listen more um, mm. as opposed to and. As to make assumptions, because that that you've got happy years, you naturally start to make assumptions, and you ask when you're doing a deal review or stuff, and it's like, well, no, I believe it's going to be this, but were you actually told no? Well, let's not make the assumption. And so I think that's a, a common one around kind of um, taking time to listen and kind of really um, not jump to any conclusions or making the assumptions. Like let's drill down. Mm. And the next one will be the ability. I think this is a really important one to go a lot deeper on your questioning, right? So a lot of um, sales leaders, reps, I've, I've seen it happen that they'll be in a situation, they'll ask very, very high level questions, but they don't kind of drill much further down. And I kind of like refer to it as almost like, for, for anyone who's had kids, I think the, uh, what I would call is almost be like the, the three-year-old syndrome, where you keep asking the question why, until you can't really go much further. And I think when you get to that, you'll probably come away with something substantial that you could probably hook your deal into to come back to where you can kind of say, well, you really understood the driver behind why they want growth or why they may have a certain challenge and the impact of that goal or a challenge. And if you can really get to that, I think it will always help you move your deal forward as opposed to very, very high level. Because at some point, someone's going to ask to, for you to be able to justify that cost and they're going to have to go internally and if you haven't been able to really understand the goal of the pain and help them articulate that back, then chances are it could A, delay your deal or stop your deal from happening. So that's a, a, another one, Paul, that I would say. Yeah, I, and I would imagine that's shared widely. It's not just you. This is across all organizations, that same issue. I'm often curious to know why it is. Um, I don't know if you have any insights on that. I don't know. I think sometimes it's just something that comes with time and experience. Um, mm. I think when you, what makes really good salespeople sometimes is people have lost a lot of deals as well. Mm -hmm. It's okay to lose. Yeah. As long as you take your learnings from that situation, are able to yeah. kind of implement your learnings moving forward. Right. I think. Yeah. Uh, we all fail, and I, I, I would I would kind of encourage people to fail yeah. um, to learn. I ask, my daughter, I ask my daughter actually, Paul. Every day I'll ask her kind of stuff like, "What did? How was school? What worked well? What was good?" But also I'll ask her, "What did not? Not in those exact words, but almost kind of get from her what she failed at today." Yeah, I want her to feel that it's okay to fail, right? Yeah, wow. You will probably fail a few times in your yeah. life. So get used to it, but just learn from it and what could you have done different? That's a great gift to give to a child because so much strife in the world is caused by people who can't take failure, who are afraid of it and and won't admit to it then because they see it as an ego bruise. Um, yeah, and, and I think you're onto something, by the way, because as you were saying it, I thought, yeah, if you, th if you think it through, somebody who is 
not asking questions and not going deep, I think it's a fear that if the further I go, the more I'll find out that there's no real opportunity here. And instead of praising them and positioning it and protecting them in a way that it's okay, you know, many deals are not going to be real. There's not enough substance in them for to invest time on. The sooner you find that out, the better. And giving them that, that both protection, but also the potency to go do that, I think is a really great gift as well. Um, yeah, I, I do think you're really onto something there by teaching them that it's okay to fail. You'll, you're giving them permission to dig deeper because they're not afraid that the well is dry. Yeah, and obviously from a Sandler point of view, right, qualify and move on if it's not right. So yeah. um, it's always about finding out if there's actually something there. And um, like I said, yeah. in sales, we, we kind of get two things in this game. You either get the, the revenue when you close a deal or yeah. the time. And if you're not going to get the revenue, get your time back and, and spend it in the right places. Yeah, I'd forgotten that you were a Sandra aficionado. <laughs> yeah. Was there, did you do some work with, was it Ganesh? Uh, no, I don't think I did. I can't remember now. I think I've just, over the years, there's been so many different okay. sales methodologies um, yeah. and processes that have been in place. And uh, from my point of view, it, they're, they're all really, really good. I don't think that I'm one sales process or methodology above and beyond yeah. any others. I think for me, yeah. it's about, can I take a little bit from here and a little bit from there yeah. and almost take the best best parts that work for me and kind of put yeah. that into my process? And that's what I would always guide my, my team to do as well. So how do you... Uh, it's an interesting conversation. Take Sander out for a second. Uh, I'm interested in the whole idea of learning and that I'll meet sales leaders who will say, okay, I want the one source of truth, and I want a language, and I want everybody to speak the same language. What you're saying to me is, no, 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 no. There is no such thing as one source of truth, that, that people need to find their own. Now, in one way, that's quite empowering. The downside to it is everybody has their own way of doing things. How do you, how do you allow that, but at the same time, have an element of control or are you just saying you know what you're going to be judged at the end of the day by how you perform how you get there i really don't mind just let me know where you need help along the way yeah i think so maybe maybe i should be a little bit clear. i think you definitely need to have a common sales language throughout the organization and i think you definitely need to have a common sales process you cannot scale a business if everyone's kind of doing their own thing however the way in which you would go and I know execute within a uh, prospect call or a client call would be different because we don't have a team of robots, and that's where yeah. you know I mean I, I would almost say that you can if your your destination is from from A to B, there is a number of different routes to get there. Um, depends on you know for example take medic you you might not start at the metrics question right you might start at yeah. understanding who the champion is first of all. Or a decision-making process—it doesn't really matter. It can all come together in the end. Mm. But I think you you need to allow <clears throat> your team to be themselves, but definitely have that framework in place. Where because, like I said, as a as a sales leader, you want to be able to forecast. You want to ensure mm. that you can spot where you have information deals, or likewise where you don't have information mm. deals that you need to ascertain. So I think mm. it's more of the have standard languages 
have a standard kind of process and framework, but allow your salespeople to be themselves and, and kind of ascertain that yeah. in the way that suits their style the best. Mm. So it's like giving sheet music to a pianist, that you're giving them the sheet music, which is the language, but you allow them to express themselves through how they play the notes. Yeah, and as long as they can mm. play a nice song, I think we're good. <laughs> Very good. Um, I wanted to ask you, in terms of your own leadership journey, what was your biggest lesson? My first lesson in leadership was actually what I would class as don't wear the stripe. Um, I remember doing that. This was, God, this was, we're going back a bit now. But when I started that, I kind of used the tell mentality as opposed to ask. Um, and that didn't really serve the results I wanted. Right? And I think over time, you kind of learn that, that you're all a team you're all aiming for the same goal and that level of it doesn't matter whether you're a CRO or a SDR, whatever role or function you are, mm. people are people. And I think that it's that kind of being a empathetic, but the kind of ask versus tell can have a huge impact on how the team will first and foremost align. And secondly, like to almost kind of go out to battle every day for, you mm. themselves to, to get the result that we need. I want to clarify when you said a empathetic, you were going a comma empathetic, <laughs> not a empathetic no, no, as no. an as an asymptomatic. No, no. <laughs> was, uh, I, that guy has no empathy whatsoever. No, no. I don't yeah, never yeah, want to. Yeah, empathy and emotional intelligence is, is huge, yeah. right. I think it's really really important. Um, being a kind of people manager for many years, Paul. There's always something going on um, yeah. that you can't see from the, the outside. And it's yeah. it's our job to, to really understand the drivers, but also understand that people have real things going on in their lives, like personal situations, and you need to be able to understand that. And I think if you can and you are empathetic uh, and have that emotional intelligence and you can support people through that, then it goes a long way. Can you be too empathetic and if so is it as bad as not having enough can you be too empathetic mm. I think there's always a risk right I think there's always a risk of like of just looking at it from just the it's the balance right you need to get a balance you can't just be completely employee and you can't be completely company I think there's got to be a balance of like how do we serve the results that we need for our team mm. and the business versus how do we do it in the right way that people come along with us and they feel valued and understood and we've, I don't know, we've kind of catered or allowed for the fact that there's, there's personal challenges that may come up. So I think it's definitely a balance and it's about mm. getting that balance. Okay, so you mentioned not wearing the stripe and that's, I think it's a lesson that people who, who adapt well to leadership most have to go through because you come from a role where it was all on you and you had to go do it and then it can be so so tempting just to say to somebody else look just do it this way right and and all you're doing then is creating a kind of a, a helplessness and, and a dependency which is not good either um but you've had many years now in a sales leadership role and we're always evolving always learning tell me about a more recent lesson 
that you've learned that has helped you become a better leader? Reasonable lesson, I wouldn't... I think there's, there's a few that always stick with me. I wouldn't say they're not almost recent. I, I think they're... Maybe they, they've proved themselves over and over again in various roles and companies. I think the first one mm -hmm. is to... Um, the most important asset you have, and maybe I'm, it's the coach in me, but the, the biggest asset you have is your people. Like you can have an amazing product, you can have great processes, but if you don't have the people, then it's never gonna, never gonna work. Um, and I've seen that happen where it's failed, where people have not been looked after um, or considered. The other one would be that I don't have a team of me. And I'll give you some context. And, I, and this is advice that I give my sales leaders um, or new new sales leaders when they come in that have done an amazing job and have now either first time in sales or could have been in sales for a while is that we all have different work ethics. We all have different standards on when we may follow up. We may follow up instantly with an email. We may follow up in a couple of hours time. When we would work till when we wouldn't, like the, the effort and emphasis we'd put on certain parts. And you have to remember that your standard is not everyone else's standard. I'm not saying that my standard is above or beyond, below, but it's not a team of me. And likewise, for my leaders, you don't have a team of you. So you need to be able to, to, to get the best out of the people that you have and be cognizant of other people's strengths and, and weaknesses. And the moment you, you kind of understand that, it's okay. And it goes back to the kind of analogy of a football team. Right? You can't have... 11 strikers on the pitch like your team will not win right you need to have the balance and it's about knowing the strengths of your team um and your weaknesses and knowing how to to put them together to to get a high performing sales team i like it T tell me then uh, anu what's your personal definition of success um personal definition of success I don't know, I've always kind of been goal-driven um, and that could be everything from kind of micro goals of what I want to get finished this week, what I want to achieve this year. And I think success from that standpoint would be as long as I'm kind of achieving what I want for me and I think that's the, the main part there. Not be successful. Success for me now is not how I would be seen and before it was in my early career to be... Ego's huge in sales, right? I think... Um, and I'll be honest to that, but I think now it's like, as long as I'm content, that's what success is. If I can do the yeah. job I've been asked to do, I'm happy in the way it's been done and I'm building a great team that feels successful from a work point of view. And obviously if you, you kind of hit those goals and from a personal standpoint, success is uh, balancing that, that work-life balance I started off with at the beginning. Mm. I'm curious to know if you've ever had a goal, speaking of, of goals in goal setting, that you didn't achieve at first, but you kept at it until you got it. And then that obviously, you know, made, made you feel particularly proud about it. Oh God, this is a story that's going back. So this was when I was in kind of sixth form college. And uh, I, I remember my, one of my sixth form teachers and uh, I won't give her name now, um, but she used to have, I used to love, I love cars, I still love cars, Paul, and I remember she used to have this white golf gti and she was super proud of it and it was a lovely car and uh i used to do well at school um i was quite lucky to be quite academic but there was the other side of me that was probably distracted too easily i was probably 
have that on my school report that it's got great potential, but the ability to be distracted quite easily. Um, In other words, great entrepreneurial spirit, a great entrepreneurial spirit. That's that was the school's way of saying it. Get distracted easily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah. I remember saying to her that by the time I'm 25, um, I'm going to buy this this sports car, and I won't go into which one it was, but it was a new sports car. And uh, obviously, I, I left there at 18 to go to to kind of university, and it so happened that I'd I'd aimed to get it for 25, and um, Maybe not a persistent story, as you were asking, Paul, but slightly deviating from that. But I managed to get it um, about a month or, or so, between a month after my birthday. So there or thereabouts. And I was super proud and it was kind of like my dream car. And I remember pulling up in the high street of the, the town in Elstree and Boreham that I, I told you I grew up in to, to use the cash point. And I went to use the cash point and... Um, I just so happened that I've looked to the side of me and she's getting out cash. I've not seen her for what, seven years. And I was like, hi, I won't give her name again, but hi, how are you doing? And we had a good conversation. Um, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go. And, uh, I turn around and she still got her, her white golf GTI that's sitting there. And I literally, I didn't know I'd parked next to her. And, uh, as I opened the door, she looked at me and looked at her and I just kind of said, I told you I'd get it, which was probably, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit cocky at the time, but yeah. um, no. probably a story where she probably set me a challenge when I was yeah. in sixth form to say, yeah. I don't think if you don't focus and yeah. think you're capable, but if you don't focus, I don't think that's ever going to happen. And uh, yeah. maybe that was the, the spur I needed to, to kind of focus. Yeah. To, no, to I like it. I like it. There's an element of C. <laughs> I like that. But that's like, that's just backing yourself. That's not cocky. Not at all. Uh, but I'm also interested in people who are very goal-oriented. Which gives you the greatest sense of satisfaction? Is it the anticipation of the goal or actually the, 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 the goal itself? As in, was it the anticipation of getting that car or was it having the car that gave you the greatest sense of satisfaction? It was having the car, un unequivocally. The anticipation was every day. I was like, I need to get this. I want to get this. The moment I get it, it was almost like, like relief I've done it and yeah. every time I sat in it like literally I would just I'd be there on my own ball and I would people would probably driving past or walking past thinking this guy's crazy but I'd just sit there and just be smiling um and it just gave me huge satisfaction in because mm. that was something that was personal to me something that I mm. like some people like going on on vacations or eating out at nice restaurants my advice has always been mm. cars so um yeah it was actually achieving the goal mm. How much of those achievements are symbolic and how much of them are, to use the same example, about the car? So how much of it is about saying the car symbolizes achievement, the car symbolizes going after something that I really want and getting it versus the fact that I like the look of the leather or the stereos, it really cool. So I think a lot of it was... Now it's it's changed completely, if I'm honest. And none of that, when I look at goals initially, it was all kind of symbolic for me personally. Mm. Going back to the story of at the beginning, my dad losing his business and having to kind of work hard and like almost kind of. And I remember at times some of my friends were going to were going to work and they were like, "Oh, I've got four figures in my bank account this month," and I'm like, "Okay, a couple of hundred quid from working a part time job." <laughs> 
right? And uh, so I'm laughing at the four figures; <laughs> they're all zero. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> potentially, right? Um, but I think at the time it was a lot of money, right? And uh, yeah. there's me kind of thinking, well, I've got a couple of hundred quid. Which weekends? Which two weekends out of four? do I probably want to go out on because I probably can't do all of them. So initially all of that stuff around having nice things was, was all symbolic around mm. making me feel better that I achieved mm. something, but then you mature right? and with time, you mature mm. and different things become important to you. So um, goals now are just a way for me to focus and give mm. myself something that I definitely want to aim for. And like I said, it's, it helps me now, maybe not so much around symbolic stuff, but around, could be just okay what do i want to achieve in in life where do i want to be when where do i want to retire right what what do i want my lifestyle to be like when i do that what does what do i want for my family like i think all of those now help me deliver or, or kind of create the goals that i want what would you say then are is your greatest attribute both uh, professionally first and then personally my best attribute mm. Or what would some of your team say was your best attribute? Okay, maybe, maybe they would say that I'm I'm kind of always available, and maybe it's not really an attribute, really, but my my ability to to kind of be a coach at any level. I think there's a lot of people who say, regardless of where when they worked with me, and I, I use the term mm. with me, not for me, but when they worked with me, regardless of role, seniority my door is always open to, to help and improve people. Um, and I think that changes in time because when you're an individual contributor, the buzz I used to get was closing a deal. And I'm not going to lie, I still get that buzz of closing a deal, but it changes to then when you become a first line manager and you watch your salespeople become successful and start to hit targets and win deals. Mm. And then you become a second line manager and then you start to feel happy and feel content and, and, and in good when you see that your line managers have now you've empowered them to coach their people and help their teams become successful. So I think every day's a learn, right? And Ooh. I still can't say that I've mastered anything yet. Um, and I don't Ooh. think I ever will, but just set yourself these, these little goals. And um, yeah, I think that that would be my attribute, the ability to kind of be Ooh. a coach. And your personal, what would your family say? Was your, your, Best attribute? My best attribute would be, I don't know, I don't know Paul. Uh, maybe they would say, I don't take myself too seriously. Like I generally would just, I'm quite easygoing, um, but also very, very driven as well. So, I mean, I'll always kind of, yeah, life's not too, mm. life's short, mm. let's not take it too seriously. Yeah. Is there a line in there? Because I don't know that those two can sit side by side quite comfortably. I was wondering, it's, I was confusing not taking yourself seriously with being laid back. They're not the same thing. No, I wouldn't say I'm laid back. No. Um, no, probably not. So I'd probably just be like, not laid back, but I would not. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of loads of saying, but it is what it is. If something happens, mm. it's like, okay, it is what it is. Yeah. Don't take myself too seriously. You fail, you pick yourself up, you just kind of get yeah. up with it. And, yeah. But you have a purpose. Yeah. It's a form of humility, I guess, is what you're saying, that there's a, 
and, and drive. Yeah, and that, that's that's a really good combination. Tell me, if you were Secretary for Education or Minister for Education, and you could make one subject on the school curriculum mandatory, what would it be, and why? Maths. I would say. Well, so I like well, maths. Yeah, we're saying a new subject or subject that's here at the moment. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Time. No, sorry. I, I, you know what I heard? I heard masks. And I thought, no, that's not a subject. <laughs> no, I think mathematics. Sorry, math. Interesting. Why? Why maths? I've never. Nobody's ever brought that one up before. I'm. I'm. I'm really interested. Why you? Why you had that? Well, sorry, I, I was hoping you were saying not a new subject, but subjects we have. I think one of the most important ones is is maths. I think. Okay. It, I use it all the time, and that the ability yeah. to have um, yeah good mental arithmetic, wherever doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're you're in a supermarket and you, you're kind of shopping to. I don't know, budgeting on yeah. a forecast. Like, yeah. that's something that you should have a good grasp of anyway. Yeah. That's interesting. We actually have, maths is, in Ireland, is mandatory. Yeah. Uh, right the way up to A-levels. Maths, English, and... Science would be... No, actually, I Irish, strangely enough, and nobody speaks it very... Well, not nobody, it's not fair, but we don't do a good job at it. But uh, science would be on the up to... What, what do you call below A levels? Like you GCSEs. call it inherent. Sorry? GCSEs. GCSEs, yes, that's it. Uh, science would definitely be on it there, but it's not mandatory. Um, interesting. Um, yeah, just to be clear, I think mathematics is mandatory in the, in the UK. Yeah, but not for A levels. It is for GSE, GCSE, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, tell me then about something that you have done that nobody knows about you. Obviously, the only thing you can share is something that's not going to get you in trouble with either the law or your family. <laughs> but something that you reckon work colleagues don't know about you. That, yeah. The work colleagues that don't know about me. Um, so basically, grew up in Elstree and Bournemouth. Um, and if you're not aware, there's a kind of the BBC studios are in um, Elstree and Bournemouth. And when I was young and growing up, I ended up having a few cameo roles. So I did a cameo role in Grange Hill, which was the, the kind of program around schools. I don't know if you, you remember that. Um, got caught up on TV, actually. This was a quite funny sort of the pop group take that when they, I think it was their last ever performance on, on Top of the Pops. And uh, there was, I'm just talking about hordes of women that lined this road that, go to the studios and I was on my lunch break actually at that electrical retailers that I told you that I was at. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember walking out on my lunch break and it was packed and I ended up seeing a, a few of the girls that I went to school with uh, and they were near the front. So I just went to speak to them and I'm in like this full like uniform, like everyone dressed up. I've got a full uniform and it was a horrific uniform. It was like gray and white stripes with like a green tie. And all of a sudden these four, um, blacked out jags came flying down the road flash the cameras are going uh, news cameras are on there as well and uh, yes I, I ended up and making it on the the news uh, what looked like I was the one of the biggest take that fans in the world when actually I wasn't they did release some videos <laughs> uh, with just what seemed to be just a, a whole street line with, with girls and women I see what you're doing now. You're getting your alibi in early so that if somebody ever digs that footage up, 
you can then say, no, 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 look, listen. <laughs> yeah. No, there's no shame in take that. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but ancient, grain shield, wow. Yeah. I know all of it. I, we, we didn't get BBC as a kid. The part of Ireland I was in, we were too too far away. It was You had to be on the East Coast to pick it up. Right. Um, so is that then must be close to Shepherd's Bush? No, that's West London. So actually it's just outside North London in Hertfordshire. Ah, okay. So I thought BBC was in Shepherd's Bush. That's they, they what I don't know. I have got um, offices and studios there as well. Makes sense, yeah. Because I used to, I did summer work there at Hammersmith Hospital as a porter many years ago. And I used to pass by Shepherd's Bush quite a bit uh, en route. Okay, interesting. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, tell me, uh, um, books, business books, sales books particularly that you have read over the years, is there one that stands out that made a, a, an impact on you and why? There's various. I've read a, a few books, I think. Um, just reading one here. The one I'm, I'm reading at the moment, Paul, is The, the Qualified Sales Leader. Um, okay. John McMahon, that's pretty good. Uh, we've got Andy White's Medic, which is, oh, sorry, I don't think you can see that. I like the sunshine. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a few of them. I don't think there's one that I would say that's been the, the bible to stand that one there's so yeah. many good ones out there like um the one by simon sinek as well which is good yeah um yeah i think there's a few even the challenge itself was a, was a good book as well so a few yeah so it sounds to me like it's it's it, your philosophy is is sampling on life you said it about sales methodologies same with books as well is that you'll go in you'll take out something that gets you thinking about something and a different book will give you some other kind of thought process and it's just little bits and pieces of everything. Yeah, a lot of smart people. Yeah. It's a shame just to, to utilise one individual's um, yeah, yeah. Um, take take the best from, from a lot of smart people. Yeah. Uh, in what you're doing now, I know what's giving you the greatest sense of accomplishment? What I'm doing now, um, I think it's so I'm, I'm in a chief revenue officer role right now, and it was a Series A company, and it was around kind of building a team, that, a sales team that, in effect, wasn't there. We had to rebuild from scratch, and and kind of focus towards the enterprise. So I think what's given me the greatest sense of satisfaction is that I've managed to hire a really, really good team, a really, really strong team that now really understands our product, our sales process, the market and are starting to close some fantastic logos and we moved into the enterprise. So off the back of that, when we've seen deals that have closed like with Google and Salesforce and Vodafone and Diageo and companies like that, that's mm. a great achievement when you looked at where the company was to where it is now and then all the way through to the point where um, just earlier in the year, in August time, we were acquired, which was fantastic. So I think when you look at that, Maybe that's the engineer in me still, the ability mm. to like build things. Um, mm. But I look back and in mm. like two and a half, three years now at SMARP, I can definitely look back and say, this has been an amazing journey so far and we've built mm. an amazing business and it's now for the next stage of that journey. Mm. So do I take it from that then that down the line, your preference is in building something from maybe not from scratch, but from early stage versus, say, working in a large, well-established multinational company? 
Yeah, so I'm like, obviously, I, I, I was at Exact Target, which was acquired by Salesforce back in 2014, I believe now, um, to become Salesforce's marketing cloud. So I've had that stint at a large corporate like Salesforce. Previously, my, one of my first sales jobs was at a company called Yell, which was Yellow Pages, which were a huge multinational in the UK as well. Wow. I think for me right now, it's the ability to have an impact. I think in a large organization, and I think, look, these companies I've mentioned are fantastic businesses, got great products, got great people, great benefits, and they're absolutely crushing it. But sometimes you can feel like a, a small cog in a big machine. Oh. And I'm not saying I wouldn't ever, because I think at some point, I definitely will go back to a large corporate when I've decided that I, personally, I think I've probably got about two, two to three more builds in me. And then I would probably look to, I don't know, just maybe go and dial it back a bit and, I don't know, just be a first-line manager and run an enterprise sales team. I think you're very good. So I think at the moment now, it's definitely the ability to kind of build and have a have a story and have a start my journey like, to have a story to yeah. tell and then in time maybe go back to a large corporate. Yeah. It's interesting. Listen to you speak. I'm always dead impressed when people can say something like, when I have two or three more bills in me, because it tells me that they have a path, they have an, a, a strong sense of where they want to be, what, what, and what they don't want, as 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 importantly as important as that. And there's there's only a few people I know have that. Most people are tend to be, I'll just suck it and see and see where it goes. And uh, but people who have their life mapped out and they won't necessarily nominate a company. The company might not even be founded yet. But like you're, you're saying is, I'll, there'll be a company that where there's a good fit and where I feel I can bring that skill set of taking it from this point to this point to say where it's acquired. And then I, I, I don't necessarily want to do that. Not anytime soon. I want to build more skills. There's, a, there's an incredible self-awareness combined with drive, determination, focus, in that, I don't. It's 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 a rare gift. It's not that many people have it. Well, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, maybe it just goes back to the early parts of just like having a, a goal in, in in mind and kind of kind of mapping that out for myself. And, and that's what I've done. I've got two or three builds, I think, before I kind of step back into some sort of corporate role or an advisory role. And that's the path I've already kind of mapped out. Fingers crossed, it it works out that mm. way. Mm. And is that something you'd like to do eventually is to get into that personal mentoring, coaching type role when you've made enough money that you don't need anymore, that you're able to then just spend time working with individuals? I think for me, it would probably be, because obviously I'm working with individuals all the time, but I think what I'd, I'd like to do is probably work with VCs or PEs mm. um, that have a portfolio of companies where they're all trying to achieve the growth at various stages of their, their kind of funding rounds. I think for me, that would be really good to be able to just come in on that advisory role um, from a from a GTM point of view and say, look, okay, where are you now? What's what's what are your gaps? And the advice we can help them give them to kind of get them on the path to, to growth and success. So, yeah, I mm. think that would be good because it gives you the ability to work with a portfolio of companies and. Uh, as any sales leader would tell you, without maybe the pressure of owning the number. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and if you make enough money in the interim period, and you never know, you could be in there not just as an advisor but an investor too. That would be the ultimate um, skin in the game. Yeah, hundred percent. So I've just actually started doing a bit of that anyway, Paul. So uh, yeah, definitely mm. that's exactly where I'd, I'd like to be um, moving forward. Yeah, that's 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 a painful process when you start investing in things like that and they don't work out and you have no control over it. It's uh, it's it can, it's it can yeah it's 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 not for the faint-hearted. No, <laughs> no, that's for sure. And we're almost up on time, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Uh, two very quick questions that I tend to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. One is if your house was burning down, assuming your family and any pets you have, they're all safe and your phone is safe, you got that with you, and you had time to run back in and grab one item, what would it be and why? My car keys, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to take the, cars, the car keys, so as long as everyone's safe, it would be the car keys. It must be a nice car, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> not, it's not, it's not a white GTI. GTI. Sorry, it's not a white gold GTI, no. Uh, but maybe if I see you, Paul, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up and take you for a spin one day. Yeah, and if it's if it's a nice enough car, I'll probably hear you coming before I see you. <laughs> you may do. That, that deep throaty V8 engine, oh, nothing like it. Nothing like it. Very good. And uh, final question for you. Uh, and when all of this is done and your time on this planet is up um, and there's a statue erected in your honour, what would you like it to say on the base plate, on the plaque? Oh, God. Not thought of that one, Paul. Um... I'm taking that's not the statement. <laughs> no, uh, I don't know what I would say on that. Well, maybe, I don't know, just great husband, great father, great son, great friend. I like it. That's it. It's simple, perfect, and it says everything about you. Anov, Kira, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've thoroughly enjoyed every second of it. Thank you for having me, Paul. Really appreciate it.